From the dawn of time, there have been certain unavoidable constants. The earth spins, the sun rises and sets, plants grow and tides flow, animals live, reproduce, defecate, and inevitably die. I know that's terribly oversimplified, and that this may be hard to take seriously, but today's episode is about number two in the history of what we've done with it. You're listening to Blunt History. I'm your host, Greg Matelski. I think this is a bit of a cheeky topic for the second show. Fair warning, I'm going to make a half-hearted effort to steer clear of anything that's terribly disgusting. But I think you might be surprised about how much we can learn from our crap. So without any further ado, let's get blunt about number two. Have you ever heard of Lucy? She's one of our most famous ancestors in the evolutionary chain. She was an Australopithecus afarensis and lived about 3.2 million years ago. It's not hard to imagine Lucy hanging out in the trees and pooping haphazardly wherever her heart desired. Truth be told, I don't really know because I can't find any information relating to their fecal habits. However, given that Australopithecus afarensis lived in small social groups of males and females, both adults and young, and that they spent a fair amount of time hanging out in the treetops looking for food and shelter, it's fair to say they probably lived and pooped much like a congress of baboons do today. Let's jump ahead a few million years to Homo neanderthalensis, or Neanderthals, who lived in Eurasia from 200,000 to 30,000 years ago. Neanderthals also lived in small nuclear family and social groups. They were quite advanced in many regards. For instance, they cared for their elderly, they buried their dead, used rudimentary stone tools, and hunted for meat. But most interestingly for our topic, they lived in caves. I suspect this is where the phrase, don't poop where you eat, may have originated. It's likely that Neanderthals defecated somewhere outside of their home caves. Even more surprising is that they may have used their defecate to fuel their fires. Either that, or Neanderthals used old fire pits to discard their waste. Seriously, in 2014 at El Salt, a dig site in Spain, a 50,000-year-old Neanderthal poop was discovered in a fire pit. This is the oldest hominin poop ever found. The scientific term for fossilized poop is coprolite. Analysis of this coprolite indicated that the Neanderthals had a healthy diet of meat balanced with nuts and vegetables. It's pretty cool that they could figure all that out from a 50,000-year-old poop. But more importantly for us, discovery of the poop in the fire pit indicates the possible organized disposal of human waste. After 30,000 BCE, Homo sapiens slowly take center stage and eventually settle the first known city, Uruk, in 4500 BCE. One of the most important cities in ancient Mesopotamia, 
Beirut was located in the southern area of Sumer, which is modern-day Iraq. Eruk gave us things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, writing, and the earliest examples of architecture in stone. It also gave us the earliest known potential toilet. It was a deep cylindrical pit in a small room, and it dates to about 3200 BCE. This is the age of the deep pit toilet, and it's exactly what it sounds like, the old hole-in-the-floor toilet. It's been around for a very long time, but believe it or not, they were relatively rare and certainly did not put a dent in the overall issue of human waste disposal in cities with large populations. For the time being, the most common practice was to drain waste into the streets or local waterways. Infections and disease would have run rampant. The larger the population, the worse the problem would have been. Salmonella, diarrhea, hepatitis A, cholera, and all sorts of worms, tapeworm, threadworm, hookworm would have been commonplace, and it sounds horrible. People could get infected by coming into direct contact with the massive human waste in their midst, or they could get infected indirectly by coming into contact with insects or vermin that carry the germs and parasites. But fighting infection wasn't the main reason why ancient cities began to improve sewage disposal. It was the stench. Oh, and don't forget, it's all just out there in the streets, in plain sight. For the first sophisticated drainage systems, we have to jump ahead 600 years to the Indus Valley Civilization of South Asia. Around 2600 BCE, cities in the Indus Valley, like Mohenjo-Daro, were being built with a system of brick-lined sewer drains. Rudimentary stone or brick toilets were connected to the sewers and were flushed with water. Manually flushed, that is. You would take a bucket of water or an urn and dump it down the hole or clay pipe that you just went in. However, at this time, public toilets did not exist. The wealthy may have had toilets in their homes. There's even evidence that provisions were made for wooden or stone toilet seats. But the poor? Well, they still went wherever modesty would allow. Toilets pop up around 2500 BCE in Scarabray, a very remote Neolithic settlement in the Orkney archipelago of northern Scotland. Toilets also make an appearance in Minoan Crete sometime between 2500 and 1600 BCE. But overall, the disposal of human waste was still very much up to the individual. So it went into piss pots, cesspits, dung heaps, alleyways, anywhere but where it should have gone. And here's where Rome enters in spectacular fashion, with three major advances. First, in 600 BCE, the Cloaca Maxima, one of the earliest known sewers, was constructed. Originally an open sewer, the Cloaca Maxima would be completely paved over by the Romans by about 150 BCE. It was originally designed mainly to carry overflow water from the frequent floods of the Tiber River. It was a fortunate happenstance that human waste flows almost as well as water. The downside is that all of it was returned to the Tiber River. The second major advance was the public bathroom. Now imagine a stone bench with holes cut every couple of feet. The bench is built over a basin with flowing water. You'd go in, sit down, 
thigh to thigh with your neighbors and do your business. In front of you is a trough of flowing water with sponges on sticks. You finish your business, grab a stick, and sponge yourself clean. <laughs> if you needed, you could dip the sponge in the trough a second time. Yeah, you could double dip. But keep in mind, everyone else is using the same trough of flowing water for their sponges. Anyhow, when you're done, you flip the spoiled sponge into the hole you just warmed up and go on your way. I know that to our modern sensibilities, this all seems horrible, but it really is a big leap forward. I mean, some of these public washrooms could hold up to a hundred people at a time. But there's a few things the Romans couldn't fight in the public bathrooms. First and foremost was the stench, which had an explosive personality, literally. Flames could burst out from any of the holes at any time due to pent-up hydrogen sulfide and methane. Worse than that, rats and other vermin would often poke their heads up too. It was so bad, a demon cult arose around the dark monsters that lurked in the black holes that led to the mysterious underbelly of the city. I'm not kidding. Couple all of this bathroom terror with frequent backups and overflows, and you can understand why most private bathrooms weren't connected to the main sewer system in Rome at all. Private bathrooms often weren't much more than a chamber pot. Some nicer toilets would have a pipe leading to a cesspit, or in even rarer cases, to a septic tank. Oh, and apparently a lot of the time, the cesspit was in the kitchen. As gross as that may sound to us, it's a clear indicator that Romans had a fear of the effects of excrement vis-a-vis -vis their experiences in the bathroom, but no fear whatsoever of excrement itself. Two steps forward, one step back, I guess. The third major advance towards the modern bathroom was the invention of the aqueduct. The first aqueduct was built in 312 BCE. It was called the Aqua Appia, and it delivered fresh, running water to the citizens, baths, fountains, pools, ponds, and toilets of Rome. No more did the Romans have to rely on local water sources, most of which were already spoiled. Believe it or not, this would be the zenith in pooping for a very long time. The collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century CE brought about the Dark Ages for Europe and set pooping back 3,000 years. I'm being a little facetious. It wasn't exactly that bad. But if we're talking about the progression of how we handle our waste, then the next thousand some odd years really does represent a major regression. The aqueducts fell into disrepair. The public bathrooms went out of service. Chamber pots and cesspits were the standard in medieval Europe, just like in the time of Gilgamesh. It wouldn't be until the 16th century CE until we were remotely close to where the Romans left off. In 1596 CE, Sir John Harrington invented the flushing toilet. He called it the Ajax. Harrington's toilet was the first to have a flush valve to release water stored in a tank, but there was only one, and it was in his house. Today, some of us call the toilet the John, maybe in tribute to its creator. Contrary to what some of you may have heard, 
myself included, Thomas Crapper did not invent the flushing toilet. But I still sometimes call mine the Crapper anyway. Crapper introduced improvements to the toilet, like the ball cock. But the basic design of Harrington's flushing toilet remained essentially unchanged. But there still weren't any sewage systems. Cesspools were still the standard means of disposal. Believe it or not, the modern sewer wouldn't be introduced until the industrial era. The first was in Hamburg, Germany, and was completed around 1850 CE. We started treating sewage with chemicals by 1890, and have been making steady advances in our handling of human waste ever since. Because of flushing toilets, sewers, and water treatment, we don't really have to see or smell our collective waste anymore. We are healthier, and our life expectancy is longer. But those proverbial demons still threaten to explode out from our toilets, whether it be the goldfish you accidentally flushed, or some snake wriggling up through your plumbing. Deep in our subconscious, we've held on to an age-old, healthy fear of bathrooms and toilets, and for good reason. Let's consider this for a moment. There is a very real, tangible link between our excrement and a painful death. I know that's a little extreme, but we lived with this reality for thousands of years with relative degrees of fear and awareness. As science developed, we began to understand and then conquer those things that lurk in the dank places beneath our toilets. But the fear didn't go away. After thousands of years of conditioning, it remained basically the same. Instead of flames and rats, we worry about germs and bacteria. This fear is never more acute for me than when I'm in a public bathroom, which is just as disgusting to me now as it probably was to the Romans 2,000 years ago. You still never know what you're going to get. Except for the stench. It stayed the same. It just doesn't kill us anymore. Well, not all of us. Lenny Bruce died on the toilet with a needle in his arm. Elvis was on the toilet too with his pants around his ankles. Jim Morrison was in the bathtub when he broke on through. And the list goes on. It's not just these cultural icons that are being immortalized in their death throes. It's also our collective subconscious fear of all the dark, private things the underbellies of our toilets and bathrooms have evolved to represent. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this second episode of Blunt History. For show notes, please go to blunthistory.com. I've linked to some pretty cool articles. And hey, if you like the show, let me know. I'm Blunt History on Google Plus and Facebook and Blunt underscore History on Twitter. You can also email me. The address is info at blunthistory.com. The Blunt History theme and all the music you hear on the show are James Rook originals. I think I'm pretty fortunate to have James working with me. Thanks, man. Next week, we're going to take a blunt look at Vlad III of Wallachia. It doesn't sound so interesting. How about this? Next week, we're going to take a blunt look at Vlad the Impaler. Until then, I'm Greg Matelski. Take care. <laughs>